0: I'm Vianette Garza and Dr. Giordano will be speaking with us today. She is a counselor educator in my master's program. This semester she is teaching an addictions class that I'm in and a couple semesters ago she taught a cultural diversity class. Um, a lot of the things that I shared about during the ethnicity panel a couple weeks ago are things that I've really been able to grow in um, since I took that class. So I'm really excited to have her speak with us today on race and the Gospel. you. That's awesome about an ethnicity panel. I didn't know that you were a part of that, so we'll have to catch up on that. Okay, thank you so much for having me here today. I'm really excited about this topic, so um, when approached for this opportunity, I was um, just said yes very quickly, and I love um, talking about this, and so um, I'm just going to dive right in, and wanted to let you all know that I'm not a theologian, um, but I am a nerd. Okay, so um, I love to study, and that's probably why I was in school for so long, and now I work for a university. But I love studying, and I've been studying the Bible more than any other topic or book in my life. And there's a lot I don't know, a lot I don't fully understand, but God has taught me a thing or two um, over the years through my study of his word. Um, And one of the most important things that I've learned is that the Christian faith is active. And so there are a lot of references about this throughout scripture. Uh, Just a few examples, James, Jesus' brother, wrote, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves, do what it says. So, pretty concrete, our faith um, should be acted out. Jesus, as recorded by Luke, identified his family as those who hear God's word and put it into practice. So, that is who Jesus said, are my brothers and my sisters, um, are those who hear the word and put it into practice. And then the disciple John wrote, dear children, let us not love with words or tongue, but with actions and in truth. So I could go on and on with examples from scripture about how our faith is much more than just reading or studying or listening to the word, but it's actually putting it into practice. It's doing something with it. It should affect our behaviors. Our faith in Jesus is active. So with this in mind, I want to talk about one specific passage of scripture this morning. And how it compels us to act in today's culture. So if you brought your Bibles, if you would turn with me to Isaiah, the book of Isaiah, chapter 58. Now, Isaiah was a man called by God to serve as his prophet. So at this point in history, um, the nation of Israel has split into two kingdoms. So you have the northern kingdom called Israel, the southern kingdom called Judah. And Isaiah was a prophet for the southern kingdom, so a prophet in Judah. And his charge was to call God's people back to God, to repent and to turn back to God. So although the people claimed to love God with their mouths and with their words, their actions proved otherwise. So it was incongruent between their words and their behaviors. So let's look at Isaiah chapter 58, beginning in verse 1 says, shout it aloud, do not hold back, raise your voice like a trumpet, declare to my people their rebellion and to the house of Jacob their sins. For day after day they seek me out. They seem eager to know my ways, as if they were a nation that does what is right and has not forsaken the commands of its God. They ask me for just decisions and seem eager for God to come near them. Why have we fasted, they say, and you have not seen it? Why have we humbled ourselves, and you have not noticed? Yet on the day of your fasting, you do as you please, and exploit all your workers. Your fasting ends in quarreling and strife, and in striking each other with wicked fists. You cannot fast as you do today, and expect your voice to be heard on high. So do you see what's happening here? The people of God seem eager to know him. They may proclaim with their words, God, we love you. God, we want to worship you. They're saying all the right things, but their actions are telling a different story. Their actions didn't match their words. So in one moment, they are praying to God and they're honoring him with their words. But in the next moment, they're exploiting the vulnerable. They are taking advantage of people. They're violent. Uh, They're looking out for their own interests instead of the interests of others. So before we judge these folks too harshly, can't we see ourselves in these people just a little bit? That sometimes with our words, we may say, I'm a Christian, I believe in God, and th- my faith is really important to me. But with our actions, we might do things counter to what God asks us to do. We may judge other people, slander others, gossip about others. We might turn a blind eye to things that are going on in the world that we should be paying attention to. We might look out for our own interests rather than the interests of others. So the words that Isaiah says to the people of Judah are really just as relevant to us today because we all play the role of the hypocrite from time to time. So let's continue, um, starting in verse 5. Is this the kind of fast I have chosen? Only a day for a man to humble himself. Is it only for bowing one's head like a reed and for lying on sackcloth and ashes? Is that what you call a fast, a day acceptable to the Lord? Is not this the kind of fasting I have chosen, to loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke, to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with the hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter? When you see the naked, to clothe him and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood." Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. Then you will, call, you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, here am I. To me, this is one of the most compelling and convicting passages of Scripture. God is saying, do you really want to worship me? Do you really want to show me that I'm the Lord of your life? Do you really want to honor me? Then fight injustice. Set the oppressed free. Feed the hungry. Take care of the poor. Clothe the naked. Take care of your family. Worship me by loving those I created, those who are made in my image. It seems like God cares a lot about our behaviors, more than just our words, He cares about our actions. So the worship that God desires is action-oriented. And it requires us to step outside of our sometimes self-absorbed daily routines and make other people a priority. It means not turning a blind eye to the injustice and oppression um, of our day. So the worship God desires is active. With our behaviors, we demonstrate our faith. We take what we claim with our words and we show that with our lives. So, what does this mean for us today? What does loosening the chains of injustice and setting the oppressed free look like in 2017? Injustice comes in many forms, and we could talk about a lot of them, but I want to spend our time today uh, talking specifically about racial injustice. And I just want to say up front that I understand that this topic can raise a lot of questions and a lot of emotions can surface, we can have different reactions. Um, I give this presentation uh, a lot in DFW, and I tend to have people um, email me or talk to me days later and say, I responded one way when you gave your talk, and then a different way about two hours later, and then the next morning I thought differently, and so you may have a variety of reactions over the next week, and so I just want to encourage you to be aware of your emotions and thoughts that come up in response to this information, and pray about it ask God to help you sort through uh, your reactions and test everything against his word because that's where we find our truth. Um, I also have business cards back there um, on the table in case you want to continue the dialogue um, after today. I'm happy to do that. I really enjoy having this conversation. So if three days from now you have this aha moment, feel free to um, shoot me an email. Okay, so um, just for the remainder of this message... I want you to kind of stick with me and hear what I'm saying and then test that against God's word and help him, ask him to help you sort through um, your reactions this coming week. You see, we live in a culture of implicit or covert bias. So what I mean by that is we don't have the same extent of blatant racism that we've seen in this country in the past. Instead, we live in a day and age of political correctness and attention to language so that our bias is more hidden. You see, despite our efforts to appear bias-free, we live in a social system that values some groups while devaluing others. And that creates bias. From very early ages, we recognize that there are some traits and some features in our country that are prized or esteemed more than others. So, we become aware of this at very young ages. Let me give you an example. Um, Samuel Ortiz, a Latino man, wrote, As a child, you understand intuitively what and whom society values. By the age of five, I knew I was living in a society where I looked and sounded different from most other people, and that this was not a good thing. So he didn't end that statement by saying, I looked and sounded different from most other people, and that was celebrated, that was appreciated. Everyone liked it, we talked about it, it it drew us closer. Instead, he's saying, I didn't look and sound like the majority, and that was a bad thing. So that's what oppression looks like in 2017, that a five-year-old becomes aware that the hand that he was dealt at birth was not a winning hand. That is oppression. that being different from the majority is not celebrated or appreciated in this country. It's seen as a bad thing. So in 2005, uh, Kiri Davis demonstrated this same truth by replicating a study that was actually conducted by um, doctors Kenneth and Mammy Clark in the 30s and 40s. And what Drs. Clark did, they asked black children if they prefer- preferred to play with white or black dolls. And what they found in the 30s and 40s was that the majority of black children preferred to play with the white dolls. So, Kiri Davis decided to check to see, have we uh, changed since then? Has there been progress in 2005? So, she did the same experiment um, with uh, four, five, six-year-old black children and asked them which doll they preferred to play with, the white or the black doll. What she found was over 70% of the black children preferred to play with a white doll, saying that this was the good doll and this was the nice doll because she was white. So how are four-, five-, and six-year-old kids coming to the conclusion that white skin equates to goodness, or kindness, or intelligence, or morality? The answer lies in the brokenness of our social system, which privileges some groups while oppressing others. We live in a country where the white racial group is valued and esteemed by society, and other racial groups are systematically disadvantaged. Members of the white racial group experience advantages and unearned benefits simply due to their racial group membership while others outside of that racial group experience difficulties and hardship simply due to their group membership. Now, I understand the pushback that comes with the phrase white privilege. Again, I've... I've, taught this class, I've given these talks, I understand how people hear that. It sounds like an accusation against white people um, that they might be bad people or that their lives have been really easy and they haven't had to work for anything, um, that things have just been handed to them on a silver platter. So I invite you, even just for our time together today, uh, to let me provide a different definition of white privilege. It really doesn't have anything to do with you as an individual, if you are a white person in the room. Um, It doesn't have anything to do with your personal morality or goodness. Instead, white privilege simply refers to advantages and benefits that come from being categorized in the white racial group. So it has much more to do with systems, rather than individuals. So if society categorizes you as um, a white person in the white racial group, you receive benefits that you really did nothing to earn other than having white skin. These advantages often are outside of our awareness because those in the privileged group assume that these advantages are available to everyone. So when others don't seem to have these advantages, we think it must be due to poor decision-making, maybe they made bad choices, perhaps they're inherently lazy or selfish in some way, or maybe it's just bad luck. But rarely do we assume that the social system that we're living in has anything to do with it. Because we romanticize this idea of justice, and we believe in this global sense of fairness, that if you work hard, you can achieve anything that you want. Um, That's what we're taught to believe. And this way of thinking is actually really common among members of the privileged group because for them, it's often a reality. They often can achieve um, a lot of what they want through hard work because they have access to resources. They have opportunities. Um, They're treated without suspicion. They're given the benefit of the doubt in our society. So if they try hard enough, they likely can achieve their goals. But there's another reality that exists that is just as true. And that's the reality of those who are not in the privileged racial group. They face unjust and unequal treatment simply due to their racial group membership. They're denied opportunities. They don't have access to resources. They're often treated with um, suspicion, not given the benefit of the doubt. And for many, they can work as hard as they possibly can and still not achieve the same results as members in the privileged group, simply due to a system that operates against them. Now, it's likely at this point you're asking for some examples, and I hope that you are, because as Christians, if we're called to fight injustice and oppression, we have to know what it looks like in order to do something about it. Um, So let me give you some examples of systemic privilege, that comes with membership in the white racial group, and then I'll give you some examples of systemic oppression. So Peggy McIntosh, a white woman, decided to write some papers and even a book about white privilege. Her goal was to make the invisible privileges and advantages that come from being white visible. So she wrote an article, White Privilege Unpacking the Invisible Knapsack. It's widely cited. A lot of people use it in their college classes. Uh, So I want to tell you just a few examples from that article that she lists that are unearned benefits that come from being white. So she says that whites can choose to be around others who look like them the majority of the time. So I just want to pause here um, with that one. So I speak on a panel, um, and it um, are other professionals who are passionate about topics of diversity. And one of the men, a black man on the panel, Uh, he often says that it surprises him when he hears white people say that they've never had the experience of being the only white person in a room. And he says that he had to get used to that very early on, of walking into a room and having no one else look like him. Uh, that That the awkwardness or the discomfort that could come from that, he had to just get used to that at an early age. So that is one of these invisible advantages that come with being a member of the privileged white group that you may have never had that experience of being the only person who looks like you in a room. Whites can also easily identify superheroes, Disney princesses, cartoon characters that look like them. Again, another unearned advantage. Whites can generally assume that their neighbors will be positive or at least neutral towards them when they move into a new neighborhood. So rarely have I moved and thought, I wonder if the people in this neighborhood are going to approve of me being there. I've actually never had that thought. Um, Again, an advantage that comes from being in the white racial group. Whites can go shopping without being followed by store employees. Whites can buy flesh-colored band-aids that actually match the color of their skin. Whites are never asked to speak on behalf of their entire racial group. So again, I've been in school for a long time. No one has ever called on me and said, Amanda, could you give us the white perspective? Could you just speak for all white people? (laughs) That's never happened to me. So these are just a few that she listed. Another really important one is that if a white person commits a crime, it does not reflect poorly on all whites. And I think this is very relevant uh, to our day and age. Um, Again, when I'm watching the news in the evening, and I see a crime that's um, widely publicized, a lot of the news outlets are covering it, and that crime is committed by a white person, I don't think that reflects any way on me at all. I've actually never had that thought of, I wonder how this is going to reflect on white people. Um, never had that thought. Again, one of the gentlemen on the panel that I serve on, he says when he's watching the news in the evening, he is just praying that that crime is not committed by a black man because he knows if it's committed by a black man, he will be treated differently in work at work the next day. White people, people in the white privileged racial group, have the advantage and the benefit of being seen as individuals. That doesn't always happen with other racial groups. So there are many more examples, but this is just a starting place, that we live in a culture that values certain groups and devalues others systematically. So I want to talk about specific instances of systemic racial oppression. I'm going to give you examples from some different realms of society, starting with the media. Evidence of systemic privilege and oppression exists in the news. How the news is communicated, what images are used to tell the stories, so who is seen in handcuffs on the news, how long is that picture kept up on the screen compared to perpetrators of other races, Researchers have found that mug shots of black suspects are more likely to be used in media reports compared to white suspects. The media is more likely to use a yearbook photo of a white suspect. So consider Brock Turner. Do you remember him? He was a Stanford swimmer, raped an unconscious woman. His yearbook photo was displayed on TV and in the newspapers even after a mug shot was attained. And this is not a privilege that's afforded to black suspects. We see that in research. Another example of systemic oppression in the media is just in the headlines uh, that the media chooses to use to depict pictures that go along with stories. So a really popular example of this, you may have heard it, um, after Katrina hit New Orleans, a newspaper printed a photo of a young black man um, wading through the water carrying food and a bag of um, soda and bread and some other things. And so um, the caption under this picture, printed in the newspaper, said, a young man walks through chest-deep floodwaters after looting a grocery store in New Orleans. Okay? So just let the connotations of that sink in. This survivor is looting a grocery store. But later, the newspaper printed another photo, this time of a couple, a white couple, a man and a woman also carrying food, and the caption read, two residents wade through chest-deep flood water after finding bread and soda from a local grocery store. These headlines reveal the implicit or covert bias that is inherent in this social system that privileges some while devaluing others. Even more recently, after the Olympics in Rio last year, An online newspaper headline read, Michael Phelps shares historic night with African-American. So her name is Simone Manuel. And I'm wondering, what would the reaction have been if the headline read, White male shares historic night with Simone Manuel? People would be like, "What? what is this? Why don't they say his name? But even name recognition is not a privilege held by all. So I'll give you one last example of systemic oppression in the media. A man named Jack Shaheen analyzed 1,000 movies that had an Arab character. In 936, so almost 94% of those movies, the Arab character was the villain. So think about the effect of this. You see one movie with an Arab character as a villain. Okay. Two movies, he's a villain. Okay. Ten movies. What about a 100 movies where the Arab character is a villain? society begins to internalize these messages that Arabs can't be trusted, that they're deviant, they're criminal, they're dangerous. I need to be fearful of them. Beverly Daniel Tatum, in her book Why Are All the Black Kids Sitting Together in the Cafeteria, noted that a lot of our knowledge about those who are different from us is based on indirect second-hand information from sources that tend to sensationalize things that have their own bias and prejudice? So what's the underlying message here? Diversify your social networks. Interact with those from different cultural backgrounds so you can form your own opinions about people so that you can hear the lived experiences of those who are different from you and come to your own conclusions rather than basing your... Preconceived notions about people on what you see in the media or on the news or hear from other sources that may have bias. Be critical consumers of the media. Oppression and injustice abound in the news outlets. But as Christians who are called to fight injustice and oppression, we have opportunity to do that with the media. We don't have to sit quietly and watch these things happen. We can write letters to editors or stop watching certain networks to advocate for the oppressed. So, diversify your social networks, be critical consumers of the media. Okay, now I want to give you a few examples of systemic oppression in the realm of employment. So, we know that America values independence, right? Self-sufficiency, strength, achievement. But these values seem to imply that we all begin the game of life on a level playing field. We're led to believe that everyone has the same opportunities, the same access to resources, and is treated the same way by society. So everyone should be able to be independent and self-sufficient and strong and achieve their goals. One of the biggest myths perpetuated by this broken system that privileges some while oppressing others is that we all begin life on a level playing field. So I want to illustrate with a quick story, which is going to be fun since some of my students are actually in the room. And usually I tell the story when they're not around. So we'll have to see their reactions. So uh, in the diversity course that I teach, I usually begin the semester with an activity. It's called the brown bag activity. And (laughs) what I do is I ask my students to um, come forward and they stand in a circle. And I pass out these brown paper bags. And I tell them that we're going to play a game, and the winners get candy. So I don't know if you know this, but grad students will do almost anything for candy, so I usually get a lot of buy-in straight from the beginning. So I have the students stand in a circle, and I say I'm going to pass out these brown paper bags. And their goal is to get four of a kind. So inside the bags, there's all sorts of objects like golf tees and paper clips and pipe cleaners, and they have to trade and barter to get four of a kind. So I pass out the bags, everyone's getting really, you know, these are grad students so they are typically competitive anyway, and now there's candy on the line, so they're really ready to go. And so I pass out the bags, and I say, okay, ready, set, open the bags, go. And so some open the bags, and they have about nine items in there, so they have three, three of a kind. And so it's really easy for them to win, right? Really easy to get four of a kind. They just have to trade one thing, and they have four of a kind. So within 20 or 30 seconds, a couple of students end up winning. They run up to the front, and I say, I'm looking for my first five winners. I already have two, here's some candy. And the winners are usually feeling pretty good about themselves. Like, man, I am good at this trading game. I should play this more often. I won, I got the candy, I feel good about myself. But little do they know, others opened their bag, and there was one thing in the bag, one item in the bag. So they quickly realize, I have nothing to trade. <laughs> there's no possible way I'm going to get four of a kind. That there's no way I can win this game. So a couple of reactions. Some of them just sit down, and they say, I can't win this. I don't like this game. I'm a little angry at Dr. G for facilitating this. I'm not getting the candy, so I'm sitting down. Others get a little bit irritated with the winners and say, well, this isn't fair. This game isn't fair. You're winning, you're celebrating, you're eating your candy, but what about us? And so we spend the rest of the class period processing that activity. And what we find is that those who open the bag and find nine things inside, they think everyone else also has nine things in their bag. So they're proud of their accomplishments. They're kind of joking a little bit about the candy that they get. Whereas those who only have one or two things in their bag are very aware of what they don't have. They're very aware that this game is set up so that they cannot win in the same way that those with nine in their bag can win. So do you see the parallels there? That's how I like to start the semester, talking about privilege and oppression. Because some members of our society are born with only one item in their uh, metaphorical bag. The cards are stacked against them from the beginning. So these individuals may live in an area zoned for a rundown school where they don't have computers, they don't have textbooks for every student, perhaps they don't even have reliable air conditioning to make it a comfortable learning environment. Um, The teachers never stay for more than a year, and they don't have the luxury of a school counselor to help them fill out FAFSA forms or college applications. These individuals may need to get a part-time job while they're going to school. So they leave school, go work a shift, and then come home and start writing their English essay or work on their math homework at midnight after their shift. These individuals may have never had anyone ask them where they're going to college, and they never thought that was even a possibility. These individuals may have experienced discrimination and racism and hate crimes, since childhood. So consider the impact of that on their self-worth, their confidence in themselves, their morale. Now compare those individuals to students who are raised in a middle class area, zoned for a beautiful school that's well equipped with every technological device and amenity that you can think of. These students are often asked where they're going to go to college, and they usually proudly respond, maybe their parents' alma mater. They don't have to work a part-time job during high school, so they're able to spend hours every afternoon writing their English essays, working on their math homework, or engaging in extracurricular activities that are going to make them a very competitive college applicant. Since childhood, these students have always felt capable, and valued, supported, and appreciated. Do you see the stark contrast? Now, is it the second group of individuals' fault for experiencing all of these benefits and all of this support? Of course not. But neither is it the fault of the first individuals who are born into a very different set of circumstances. This social system is broken. It privileges some while oppressing others, yet we say If you try hard enough, you can do anything you want. Just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Those beliefs assume that we all start on a level playing field. But the reality is that our playing field is rocky, it's imbalanced, it's full of peaks and valleys. It is anything but level. Let me give you one more example. Deva Pager conducted a study in Milwaukee. to see whether or not having a felony charge precluded you from getting an entry-level job. So she was a criminologist and she was looking at um, if you are released with a felony charge on your record, are you able to reintegrate into society? Can you get a job? And in the last um, couple of months before she conducted this experiment, her dissertation chair said, you know, let's also add in the component of race, just to see uh, what results we find. So, she enlisted four actors. So, two were white and two were black. And she gave them all fictitious resumes. They were the exact same, except one of the black actors and one of the white actors had a felony charge. It was drug possession on their resume. So, they dressed similarly. They had scripts, so they spoke similarly. These gentlemen actually looked fairly similarly in terms of um, their clothing and mannerisms. And they went out into uh, the city and applied for entry-level jobs. So, gave their resume, filled out an application, and then these researchers counted how many got callbacks from those employers, saying, yeah, come in for an interview. We're really interested in you. So, what they found was that the white male, without a felony charge, received callbacks from 34% of the employers that he visited, asking him to come in for an interview. Again, for entry-level jobs. The white male with a felony charge received 17% callbacks. The black male without a felony received 14% callbacks. And the black male with a felony charge received 5% callbacks. So the black man without a criminal record fared no better than a white man with a felony. So how do we explain this? How do we make sense of these numbers? Well, Deva Pager thought, maybe it's Milwaukee. Maybe there's something going on in Milwaukee. So let's do this same experiment in New York. And she found the same results, that black men without a criminal record got less callbacks for entry-level jobs than white men with or without a felony. This is evidence of implicit bias. This is evidence of covert racism. This is why the idea that if you pick yourself up by your bootstraps, you can achieve whatever you want, is false. It's not a level playing field. There are advantaged groups and there are disadvantaged groups. Now, let me talk about one more realm of um, society that's affected by systemic oppression, and that's the criminal justice system. So Michelle Alexander wrote a powerful and provocative book called The New Jim Crow*. It details how law enforcement and the implementation of law can be used to keep people of color down and to raise white men and women up. Now, an example is cocaine law. So I'm an addictions counselor by trade, and I care a lot about um, public policy around um, drugs and alcohol and treatment and things like that. But there's something very peculiar when it comes to cocaine. So, cocaine is the same drug but can manifest in different forms, right? So, we have powder cocaine, we have crack cocaine. Um, Powder cocaine is very expensive, while crack cocaine um, is much cheaper. So, you would think that laws around cocaine offenses would be similar, right? Despite the form that it happens to come in. But prior to 2010, this was not the case. The penalty for crack cocaine offenses... Were a hundred times more severe than powder cocaine offenses. And you may be thinking, why? What's the difference? Well, there's a big difference in the demographics of those who use these different drugs. Powder cocaine is used by the affluent, while crack cocaine tends to be used by those in lower socioeconomic statuses. And we know that members of oppressed racial groups are overrepresented among the poor. So the disparity in the cocaine laws had a direct and significant negative impact on marginalized racial groups. In 2010, President Obama signed the Fair Sentencing Act, which brought the disparity down to 18 to 1 instead of 100 to 1. So that means the penalty for crack cocaine offenses is now only 18 times more severe than powder cocaine offenses instead of 100 times more severe. It's important to note that people of all races use illegal drugs, the most prominent actually being white youth, but the majority of those in prison for drug charges are members of racially marginalized groups. This is more evidence of systemic oppression. Ethan Nadelman, the director of the Drug Policy Alliance, said, when you criminalize a vice and you leave it to the discretion of law enforcement as to how to enforce those laws, those laws are not typically going to be enforced against the whiter, the wealthier, and the more affluent or middle-class members of society. Inevitably, those laws will be disproportionately enforced against the poorer, the younger, and the darker members of society. Thus, laws are not enforced without bias. Covert racism manifests even within the legal system. So, last weekend, I was sitting in the airport... um, Sitting at my gate at our terminal, uh, I saw the footage of Demetrius Hollins being assaulted by two white police officers in Georgia. I watched as I showed the police officer um, punching him as he got out of the car with his hands raised and then kicking him as he lay handcuffed on the ground. The footage, shot by someone's cell phone, was played over and over and over as I was sitting there in the gate at my gate. And beside me was a black family with two young children, a boy and a girl, who were watching. And I couldn't help but wonder what those kids were internalizing about themselves, about others, about the world they were living in. Were those children at risk of thinking, I'm not valuable, or others can't be trusted, or the world is a dangerous place? Think of the long-term repercussions that come from adopting those core beliefs. This is oppression. And its insidious impact has trickled into almost every aspect of our society. The problem is so pervasive and the system is so broken that it almost seems hopeless. Almost. You see, we serve a God who continually rescues and redeems his people. We serve a Heavenly Father who takes up the cause of the oppressed and defends those who are treated unjustly. We serve a Lord who loves to do that which seems impossible. Our hope for change is not in a social system or a political party, education, or philanthropy. Our hope is in the Lord. As the psalmist wrote, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Our Lord is bigger than the brokenness of our social system. And those who bear his name, his church... We're called to be his hands and feet. And that means fighting injustice and oppression. But how do we do that? So let me close with just four quick examples, practical examples, of how we can do this. Number one, address your own internalized bias. That's one of the best things we can do to get started. We are all victims of this broken social system. We've all been socialized with the same images on the TV screen. We've all gone through schools that tell our history from a particular slant. We all are victims and products of this broken system. So the best thing that we can do to get started is to identify and then address our own biases. So research tells us that the best way to combat your internalized biases is to spend time with members of the group that you have biases around. Okay? So here, their lived experiences. Develop empathy for what it's like to be a member of that particular cultural group. Interact with people who are different from you. The second thing we can do is allow members of oppressed racial groups to define their own reality. So this is huge. If a member of an oppressed group takes a risk and tries to explain what oppression looks like for them or what it feels like for them, accept it and validate it. Unfortunately, too many of these individuals often are faced with defensiveness or even accusations. Oh, you're just being too sensitive. I'm sure there's another reason for why they did that. Or come on, she didn't really mean it like that. Accept it and validate it. Allow these individuals to define their own reality. Three, welcome and appreciate diversity. So celebrate difference. We have a God who loves diversity. Just look at the world that he created. Why don't we join with him in celebrating and appreciating difference rather than trying to get everyone to conform to the majority? So this might mean sacrificing some of your own preferences or compromising in order to accommodate diverse styles and perspective. But celebrating difference is much different than presuming that everyone should be the same. Finally, say or do something when you see oppression or injustice. Privilege is sustained by silence. When you see injustice or inequity, do something or say something about it. Members of the privileged group should see it as their responsibility to change this broken system, rather than the burden of those on oppressed groups to make changes. Think of how illogical that is to say, although you don't have much power and although you don't have much influence, you need to change this broken system. That doesn't make any sense. It needs to be white people talking to other white people saying, this is not okay. This oppression, this injustice is not okay. And we need to make changes. One of my favorite Martin Luther King Jr. quotes is, in the end, we will remember not the words of our enemies, but the silence of our friends. Being silent perpetuates this broken system of privilege and oppression. So have conversations about racial injustice. Maybe even this week, start the conversation. Listen to the lived experiences of members of oppressed groups. Talk with members of privileged groups about the injustice of this system and make it a priority to start the conversation within your own social circles. Now, I recognize that fighting injustice and oppression is hard, and it might lead to awkward conversations. It might mean taking risks. It might mean stumbling and making mistakes along the way. So, why would we do it? What motivates us? Well, as Christians, we're motivated by the love we have for our Heavenly Father. We want to worship Him in the way that He desires, right? And He outlined what He desires in Isaiah 58. We want to love not just with words, but with our actions and with our behaviors. Our Heavenly Father calls us to love those created in His image. He calls us to fight injustice and oppression. And when you consider all that God has done for us, how can we not be motivated to do what we can to change this broken system of privilege and oppression? I think one of the most beautiful aspects of this passage in Isaiah 58 is that God asks us to do all the very things that he's already done for us. He asks his people to care for the poor, the hungry, the oppressed, the naked, and the wanderers. Well, God provided for us when we were poor. In Isaiah 55, it says, Come, all you who are thirsty, come to the waters, you who have no money. Come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without cost. God fed us when we were hungry. In John, uh, Jesus declares, I'm the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. God set us free when we were oppressed. Paul writes in Romans that we are no longer slaves to sin. And God clothed us when we were naked. And Isaiah 61 says, I delight greatly in the Lord. My soul rejoices in my God, for he has clothed me with garments of salvation. And God found us when we were wanderers. In Luke, Jesus says, "For the son of man came to seek and save what was lost." So we were once poor and hungry, oppressed, naked and wanderers, but the Lord satisfied all of our needs more than we could in ways that we couldn't even ask or imagine. So how can we not in turn do the same for others? Each of you has unique gifts and unique passions, and unique past experiences, and unique opportunities. So how will you use these things to help loose the chains of injustice and set the oppressed free? You see, this is the true fasting that God desires. It's active, it's other-oriented, and it's motivated by our gratitude for what our Heavenly Father has already done for us. Let us pray. Father, we thank you so much for another day just to be together and worship you and proclaim that you're the sovereign king over this creation, over the brokenness of this system. None of this surprises you. You are bigger than all of this. God, we just ask that you do what seems impossible. We ask that you create change. We ask that you glorify your name. Uh, We ask that you work a miracle, even in our own community, in Denton, um, in the United States, Lord, and globally. We need you. We need you for this. And our help comes from you. We cling to that promise. We know that you will never leave us or forsake us. We know that you're working for our good. Please help us to take what we have um, heard this morning, what we've read in your word, and apply it directly to our lives this week. In your name we pray. Amen.